The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The financial crisis that reached its climax 10 years ago has forced us to fundamentally re-examine the way we think about economics, about finance, about central banking and about politics. And that process is still continuing. Welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Peter Thalarsen, and this is the first in a series of discussions to mark the 10th anniversary of the crisis with people who lived through it. Today I'll be talking to Paul Tucker. Paul is a former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, and is now Chair of the Systemic Risk Council and Senior Fellow at the Centre for European Studies at Harvard University. He's also the author of a new book, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Paul Tucker, welcome to The Exchange. Um, Thank you. I guess I'd like to start by talking to you about the genesis of this book, Unelected Power. We're here roughly a decade after a lot of these momentous events of 2008, which you lived through at the Bank of England, obviously, and you spent, I think, the last four and a half years or so at Harvard sort of um, thinking about them and obviously writing about them. To what extent would you say that the crisis has shaped your thinking about sort of central banking and and the broader context for central banking? And I, I suppose the other thing is, do you have, do you think we now have enough distance from it to draw some some lasting conclusions about what should change? So I'm pretty sure the answer to the last question is no, right. because <laughs> I think we're still in the process of adjusting to the terrible crisis. What, I mean, in some respects, and this is exaggeration, but in some respects, the crisis gave an opportunity to some of us to reshape central banking as we thought it needed to be reshaped, kind of correcting for some of the mistakes, not just in this country, the UK, but around the world in the decade or so before. But what prompted the the book was that as we did that, where we now means UK officials in office a decade or so ago, we, I, was very clear that the central banks shouldn't have certain powers, and in particular being the market regulator, which some people had in, in, in Britain. And secondly, that if central banks were to be not only responsible for monetary policy, but also for this thing called financial stability, and also supervising banks, then central banks needed to be organized in a completely different way so that they took all of their missions seriously. And I, this is a slightly harsh judgment, but I do not think, for example, the Federal Reserve took, all, took banking supervision as seriously as it took um, monetary policy in the decade or more leading up to the crisis. And I think that was partly a problem of incentives. And so what I wanted to do when I get, got to Harvard, I had an opportunity to kind of, so what were the, why? Why did I hold those judgments, hold those views on the limits of power, um, what was necessary for the legitimacy of mm. these unelected officials? And that meant thinking about, well, what are our democratic values? What does the rule of law entail? What does constitutionalism Entail, And I think a lot of that actually was in the back of my mind a decade ago, but the book gave me an opportunity to kind of 
put it out more systematically. To pick up on something you said there, you know, this idea that you were sort of there was an opportunity to correct some of the sort of the the failures of central banking. Are you then talking really about bringing back together uh, supervision of banking with central banking? Yes. Because, because yes. you do sort of there is this paradox which you sort of you explain quite a lot in the book, which is, you know, that the crisis was a failure of you know the system, politicians, regulations, central banks, you name it. And yet central banks have emerged from that whole period with more power than they had before. So it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> if you go back to the crisis of the 20s and the 30s, central banks were stripped of power in law or at least in practice and didn't really regain anything like the power that they'd had at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, until well, 1980s, 1990s. And then suddenly there's this crisis that is not as big, thank God, as the Great Depression. And they're gaining even more powers. I mean, there is, uh, I'm not sure whether it's a paradox, but it's certainly a historical curiosity. I, I don't think one can make a case that the central bank should be the only authority for banking supervision and banking regulation. But I think it is a great mistake, and obviously a great mistake, and I say this without hindsight, to think that the central bank shouldn't be involved in these things at all, for a whole b bunch of reasons, but the most obvious of which is, when things go horribly wrong, the lender of last resort is almost always called, called into action, and the lender of last resort is, by definition, the monetary authority, the central bank. And so if you're going to be at the scene of the disaster, you are going to have to make judgments on the health of particular banks. And it turns out you have a deep interest in the adequacy of supervision and the adequacy of regulation. And that's inalienable. And it doesn't mean others don't have an interest um, in it. So I think it was a in Britain, there had been complete separation, but elsewhere in the, in the world, there was this view central banks were really about monetary policy now, as laid out in MIT macro. And, and I think there's nothing deeply wrong with MIT macro other than that it is not sufficient for the stability of the monetary system. You, you set the context a bit earlier on, and you have this idea right at the beginning of the book where you talk about sort of the distinction between illiberal democracy on the one hand and undemocratic liberalism on yes. the other. I'd be interested in your view on to what extent you think, again, more broadly, sort of politically, what we've seen over the last few years, the Brexit vote, the election of Donald Trump, our reaction to that sort of idea of a sort of a technocratic state where decisions are being made or perceived to be made at a distance from people's ability to control them or to decide on them. And and so what we've had really is a sort of democratic reaction to that to that situation, you know, the sort of the we've had enough of experts type sort of sentiment. I do think that's, that's a, a really big part of what's going on. Mm. And it's not just since the crisis in our adult lives, the last 30, 40 years that increasingly public policy has been in the hands of unelected judges or independent regulators, not just in finance, and central banks. In the, in the United States, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that the marginal lawmaker, kind of the person that's really 
making the substance of the law, high policy, is either an unelected judge or an unelected regulator. And the, the reason I think that matters and is can, can be problematic unless controlled carefully is that one of the wonderful things about representative democracy is it brilliantly separates our view, the people's view of the government, are they doing a good job or not, from our allegiance to the system of government, much better than other systems of government, much better than direct democracy, in my view. But that only that's only true. That rather wonderful thing is only true so long as we can vote out the people that we think have messed up. Well, we can't vote out the judges, and we can't vote out the central bankers, and we can't vote out the independent regulators. And so we need to be pretty careful about what it is we want them to do. And I'm not sure that many jurisdictions, countries have been careful. They've, they've given independent regulators and to some extent independent central banks pretty vague mandates. Go make the world better. Well, when it's not better, the people get angry because they feel power has moved even further away from them than it already is a bit distant in a representative democracy. So the book is partly, I mean, that's the deep issue that it's trying to contribute to. So this is all in the context sort of of a a functioning democracy or or a healthy democracy, I think you talk about at some point. But you can also, you can say that particularly at the moment, there are moments where people are looking to, to unelected, you know, to some of these unelected bodies almost to kind of protect them or defend them from sort of the extremes of what the democratic uh, process might throw up. So, I mean, if I think of the day of the Brexit vote in the UK, when, you know, David Cameron had resigned as prime minister, the main proponents of the Leave campaign were also seemed to not really have a clue what to do. And Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, steps up and sort of reassures everybody. And everybody said, oh, thank goodness, at least there's one grown up sort of still around. There is a sense that the democracies need to sort of delegate these powers in a sort of constrained way. But there are also moments where you're sort of relying on, on unelected bodies or officials. To... Well, they were using those constrained powers, right. I think. I mean, those constrained powers weren't there and operative only so long as there was a functioning government. They were there. Parliament had delegated them. I mean, I wasn't following it very closely, but I assume there was a vote in the MPC and individual members reached their own view and they had to go and account for it afterwards to the select committee. So that was a kind of proper exercise of delegated Mm. powers. But you point to a really big issue, which is what happens in emergencies. Mm. And... Here there's a kind of particular issue with central banks. Central banks are capable because they can create money, because they can buy stuff, assets. They're capable of turning themselves into the fiscal authority. And the actual fiscal authority in an economic crisis has pretty strong incentives to sit on their hands, knowing that the central bank will try and reinvent themselves as the U.S. cavalry, going exploring the boundaries of their powers to save the world, save the euro area. You know, Mario Draghi was the economic sovereign of Europe. He rescued the euro area without going to the Council of Ministers, I I think, before to discuss whether that was something he should should do. I, I think there should be much greater clarity 
about the rules of the road for emergencies. The elemental need is to do as much contingency planning as you can do, but it's more than that. It's what should the process be when you're absolutely the edge of your powers, legally, you're going to do something which no one has ever thought of before, but it may be a good thing that you can do it. And politicians have, and, and the courts have an incentive in those circumstances to let you go ahead. And then afterwards, um, when the world has been saved, to say that it's all terrible, really, and your powers should be constrained. And this isn't imaginary. What's happened to the Federal Reserve is that, fairly or unfairly, it is suspected that it went beyond some invisible boundary during 2007, 8, possibly 2009. And in consequence, Congress cut back its lender of last resort powers. That There's a lesson in that. And the lesson isn't, I think, quite what a lot of people think. A lot of people say this is terrible and, and the world will be a worse place in the future. I think the lesson is there should be much more active debate about so what do we want the lender of last, last resort to do? Not just what should the constraints on it be? What should we stop them doing? That matters too. They certainly shouldn't lend to insolvent borrowers. But what's their purpose? And how do we measure them against their purpose? And there's almost no debate about that in the United States, which is really... Well, it's somewhat strange and not very good. This is where your idea of a sort of money credit constitution comes in. Yes. Right? Sort of, yeah. Well, it's one of the ways it comes in, yeah. 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 And, I mean, and sort of reading, you have these sort of five points, four of which I would say would say reasonably uncontroversial, targeting inflation, you know, reserve requirements for banks, some way of providing liquidity to the financial system, a way to wind down failing banks, and yet... The one that struck me was sort of where you, you talk about constraints on central bank balance sheets. And what what do you mean by that and why do you think yes. that's necessary? Well, let, let me first of all just say that if, if the first four points have become non-controversial, we should remember that points two, three, and four were not part of the setup before the crisis, which was partly why the crisis was so hard to manage and actually even why it why it happened. So this is a, you know, there's a blunder in the couple of decades before the crisis in thinking about what should the money credit constitution be. And just dwelling on that, even now, I mean, somewhat to my surprise, most of the regulatory reform has been about things that legally are banks. There's not much that's happened around shadow um, banking by which I mean something that doesn't have the legal form of a bank, but in every other respect has the fragility of a bank. And as long as that's small, it doesn't matter. And if it becomes really big, it will matter because it will blow up. And so saying central banks can't lend to shadow banks, is that will not be a, a time-consistent policy because if the ceiling falls in, politicians will look to central banks to do so. And that's a constraint that exists in the United States especially, somewhat in continental Europe, not so much in the UK as it happens. But the points two to four may not be controversial, but they're new, um, or new-ish. Five, the fifth, is, is really important. I mean, central banks could lend to individual households and, and individual companies on, on different terms. I mean, that's distributional policy that once you get into lending to particular sectors or particular companies, how do you assure the public 
that you're not, in language that was used in Britain a generation or more ago, picking winners or picking losers, sustaining the, the losers who aren't, aren't viable, rather than putting the money out there and allowing the markets, the private sector, to allocate um, resources. And if, you, and, if, and if the banking system is broken for a while, why is it the job of the central bank to pick who gets to be funded by the government or by the state, rather than people that we elect? But, and I take your point, but, but if we just think about, I mean, the biggest purchases by far in Europe, in the US, in the UK, in Japan, um, have been of government yes. bonds. Yes. And um, so that's so that's a subsidy for the government. No, it is. This is a really important point. There's a school of thought in the United States that says the Federal Reserve should only ever operate in government securities, should never operate in private sector paper at all. And these people tend to be on the liberal right, very much free market people. And what they don't face up to is, well, this subsidizes the state. And you, you see a kind of there's a kind of particular variant of that going on in Japan at the moment. So this kind of makes a case for operating in repo as much as you possibly can rather than outright purchases and doing it as evenly as you possibly can over all of the, over all of the sectors, but having an open public debate about that. Mm. Because otherwise you're making distributional choices and unelected people should stay out of making big distributional choices. But I, I guess, so... But if you're thinking about buying government bonds, government securities, then I guess sort of the way I read your suggestion in terms of constraints was also just about the extent to which you could do that. Because, I mean, obviously there comes a point where you've bought so many government bonds that it's not realistic for anybody to ever think that you're going to sell them again or that they will sort of roll off. And, I mean, you could argue Japan is sort of in that position already or heading in that direction. So... Is is that part of the? Is there a sort of magical point at which you say you should you, you can buy this many government bonds but no more? I don't know, to be honest. Um, let me just say something about Japan. I mean, I I think Japan's in a special place at the moment. I mean, they're really in the antechamber of monetizing the government debt. I mean, when you commit to buy whatever quantity volume of long-term bonds is necessary to hold down long-term rates. You're not quite monetizing the debt, but you're really close to it. And you wouldn't do that unless you were working absolutely hand-in-glove with the government. So it's, it's not monetary policy independence as we know it. And in some respects, you could say, well, actually, they would do better to take the next step and actually suspend monetary independence and make it clear that they're going to inflate away some of their debt. Krugman talked about this decades ago. It's how do you commit to be being irresponsible? And central bankers kind of explored this forward guidance and more Mike Woodford stuff. I, I don't think the financial markets find it easy to believe that central bankers um, can issue credible promises to be irresponsible. I mean, if, if being irresponsible is the only thing that is necessary to alleviate the debt burden, um, that's, the solution isn't going to lie in the hands of central bankers. Now, that, that, the West doesn't have anything like that problem um, at the moment. I think the thing for the, in the general case is if you do quantitative easing, and I was 
a participant in, in that, and I think it was the right thing to, to do in, in early 2009. I think you should want to shrink your balance sheet back to some normal size, and I can say exactly what I mean by that, um, as soon as you can, consistent with maintaining your inflation target. So if, if that means selling bonds at some point, rather than just allowing them to run off, I'd sell the bonds. I mean, I think it's really important for central banks not to be sitting on this mountain of a balance sheet which distorts absolute and relative asset prices beyond the point where they need to, to revive the economy and achieve their inflation target. So if, if we think sort of in terms of, I mean, you're describing a world where there's been a crisis, there's been this response, and then, you know, eventually things kind of go back to normal um, at some point, which you could argue is happening in the US. Yeah, it's starting being, to happen, yeah. being talked about in, in the EU. But at the same time, people are also looking forward to the next downturn. And one of the big questions is, if we were to have another big downturn, is there any ammunition left? Has everything been fired? What is wrong then with the idea of saying the next step will be to basically just print money? Build, you know, helicopter money, as Milton Friedman famously called it. So there are two things there. The first is, I think this general challenge, especially if a recession comes over the next few years, is a big, big deal. And I don't really understand why the central bankers aren't talking about it more. I mean, of course, I understand that they will worry that if they do talk about it, it will impede the recovery. But they've got to find a way of saying, we're not as equipped to be the US cavalry next time round. On the particular thing about monetization, I mean, this is fiscal policy. If, God help us, any of the big economies arrive in a position where the only way out is to print money and send it to households or to firms, that's a decision for the fiscal um, authorities. Because it only works if you're promising to keep the money in existence for Ever. Well, that's not standard monetary policy at all. This is, a de- this is a decision for people that we've elected. Now, once you think about it like that, you think, well, actually, but shouldn't they use regular fiscal policy and issue debt to do infrastructure spending before we, before we tear up the monetary constitution? I mean, I've been, I've been surprised how keen people are on... Um, talking about helicopter money before fiscal policy has been tried. Um, but a more general, the kind of more general version of this, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that we compared somehow with the pre-Second World War era. Um, we now seem to live in a world where fiscal authorities like sitting on their hands and letting the central banks move more and more into the territory of fiscal policy. This is this is not sustainable. I mean, I don't know how long it can be sustained for, but it is not sustainable in democracies. And so the really big challenge is, and I say this in the book without curing the problem, is how do we design effective fiscal institutions? 
because we seem no longer to have effective fiscal institutions, whether it be in the United States of America or for different reasons in the in the euro area. And that's that's a I mean it is very strange that the only people that could save the Euro project was the central bank. That's not what would happen in any normal constitutional republic. And that it happened once, great, but it's not obvious that there's another solution if we revisit that hellish problem again. That's that's grim. The other thing I'm curious about is the sort of the broader intellectual framework or the intellectual consensus. I mean, it seems pretty clear that one of the biggest problems before the crisis is whatever you thought maybe the flaws of design were or the lack of powers. I mean, the real failure was there was a sort of broad intellectual agreement that, you know, we'd arrived at a great, with a few dissenting voices, but not very many, that we'd sort of arrived at a great moderation, that inflation was more or less under control, that, you know, financial markets were broadly sort of self-regulating, that banks could be relied upon to act in their own self-interest and so forth. I mean, all of these things obviously turned out to be wrong, but but if you're trying to design a, a sort of a framework, is it really possible or desirable necessarily to design a framework that can survive a complete sort of paradigm shift like that? So I don't discuss this in the book, but for what it's worth, I think that view that there was this consensus um, is completely exaggerated. So, so there is evidence that Alan Greenspan um, thought that, and he seems to have recanted to a certain extent and been intellectually honest about that since the crisis. But I think because he was such a prominent figure, this, is, this has become a kind of mainstream view, and I don't, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true of the economics profession. So behavior, the, peop, the fact that people were um, given the Nobel Prize relatively recently for behavioral finance, more than one Nobel Prize in more than one year, this isn't, this isn't work they've done since the crisis. This is work that was done ages before the crisis. Um, and within policy institutions, if the consensus was as deeply embedded as you and others um, suggest, and you reflect a widely held view, I, I accept, why on earth were there so many people working in the FSA in London and in the FDIC and the OCC and the, and the Federal Reserve supervisors in banking supervision against across continental Europe. With the exception possibly of New Zealand, there's very little evidence that people dismantled banking supervision, saying actually, you know, the perfect markets now, it's it's all absolutely fine. I, I don't think that was where the problem was. I, I The deep problem, I think the deep problem was a compartmentalization of public policy functions. There was this thing called the new public management that what we ought to do is organize the regulatory state, the, the administrative state, like the private sector. And each, each agency ought to have one function and it ought to have a board and all of that. And what that did is that took central banks around the world out of, formally out of banking supervision, less formally, they stopped thinking about banking. I mean, and this is absolutely staggering. If you're sitting in the monetary authority, most of the money that any of us use as businesses or people are bank deposits. I mean, monetary stability requires two things. Stability in the value of central bank money relative to the goods and services that we buy, but stability in the value of deposit money relative to 
central bank money. And that, that's, Paul Volcker warned about all of this in 1990. I mean, in two or three places, I quote that speech. And I remember that speech being given. And he's, I forget the exact words now, but he says something like, if ever central banks lose interest in or influence over the financial system, there will be problems. Well, that's exactly what, what happened. And I don't think it's just because that Chicago MIT economics decided the world was perfect. I don't, I don't think it's that. Because actually, MIT economics was dedicated to the world not being perfect. And behavioral finance was as much a Chicago invention as anywhere else. But so, so had structures been different, then we could have had a different outcome. I think if if I think if people had remembered that the resilience of the banking system really really matters to the stability of a monetary economy, and even now I worry slightly that 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 hasn't that's not completely embedded. I, I guess I am one of the people that contributed to the creation of what's called macroprudential policy, and I'm the truth is that I worry that. There are too many people that think that macroprudential policy is to do with managing the credit cycle and avoiding every asset price boom and avoiding every house price um, boom. And I'm not convinced they'll be able to do that. And, it, and I'm not convinced that they will be able to explain to the public when they are succeeding and when they're failing. And, but most importantly, it's not the most important thing for them to do. The most important thing is to ensure that the core of the financial system is highly resilient. Final question. You've had several years to sort of think through these ideas and delve into sort of, you know, aspects of, you know, legal foundations of central banks and various other agencies and so forth and write a very long and elaborate book in exploring some of these ideas. How, how would you like to sort of see some of these ideas put into practice? And what role do you, would you like to play in that? Ah, um, I mean, at a general level, what I would like to see happen is that a kind of consensus or norm developed in the States, in continental Europe, in Britain, about what are the limits of unelected power? It's, the UK has a categorization of different kinds of arm's length agency. But it's very hard to discern principles in it. And I ultimately, my book is motivated by concern for democracy, not concern for central banking or anything like that. I mean, it's essentially a book whose undertone, or one of whose currents, is a certain kind of liberalism is not enough. A liberalism where that doesn't get beyond formal legality and oversight by judges is not enough. I mean, you know, democracy, representative democracy, matters. And it is convenient in the short run for our elected politicians to give more and more functions to people like me, or as I was. And that has got to stop, actually. And I, if I can contribute to that debate, I'll be, or spark that debate. In the sense, in the States, the debate exists, but reconfigure the debate a bit. I'd be, I'd be glad. Yeah, tempted to wield unelected power yourself again at some it's, point. It's, it's, it, it, writing this has been fantastic. Actually, the, the, the main thing in my mind at the moment is, have I got a 
is there a second book project in me? And that's something I'll kind of think about over the summer and, uh, and the autumn. Good. Paul Tucker, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Peter. Unelected Power is out on May 16th. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This episode was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, sign up for future podcasts on iTunes and check out views on this and a wide range of other subjects at breakingviews.com.